We're in the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue to talk about Jesus because the book of Hebrews is about Jesus. It is written to the Hebrews, to the Jewish Christians of the day. And it's not hard to imagine the challenges that they faced. They were probably loved by no one. Their Jewish kinsmen saw them as traitors, betrayers of the faith, because they embraced this Jesus Christ whom they had rejected, whom they had consented to be tortured and hung on the cross. And then you have the Christians who for so long, the non-Jewish people who were put down and looked down upon by the Jews, who they would not even talk to about God, who they were rejected. And so now here's this group that have accepted Jesus Christ and they're wanting acceptance. So I just imagine that their life was filled with turmoil and unacceptance. And so the book of Hebrews is written to them to encourage them that their faith is sure and their faith is strong. Read with me verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven, so He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs." As I said, the people were struggling with their faith, and we struggle with our faith. It's, we know there's the things that we should hold on to. It's easy in our world today to feel more rejection and persecution. There was a time, uh, not that many years ago, a time that you grew up in as well as I, that being in church was the place to be. If you weren't in church, you were the bad people in the town or you were the ones looked down upon and it was right to be in church. It was so right that I remember learning years ago that often businessmen made sure that they were in a church so that they were known as church-going people and politicians would make sure they made their appearance in a church to uh, try to affiliate with the Christian people and that has much fallen by the wayside. And so we can relate to the Hebrews here to some degree. But as I said, they had an extra challenge upon them because of the change. And thinking about the book of Hebrews, there's a lot we know about it, a lot we don't know about it. It was written probably 
sometime before 70 A.D. The reason we know that is in verse 1011, it refers to the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed it. And so apparently it was still standing, it was still a place of worship when this was written, which means it was written before 70 A.D. We don't know who wrote it. A lot of people think Paul, it, it, it is very reminiscent of Paul's writings. Others uh, pick at it and say, no, it wouldn't be Paul. Paul didn't write this way. It's maybe Apollos or one of Paul's followers. It really isn't germane to the, uh, to the subject, to us. Who wrote it? We know it was all Scripture is given by God for our benefit, for our instructions. And so we study it as the Word of God. I, for one, I do think Paul wrote it. I think it's a little different language than he used, a little different style. But it was, it, it, there's so much that just is reminiscent of Paul, and certainly with Paul's background as a highly educated person in the Jewish faith, he could teach this so well. So that's where I stand on that. If you want a key word in the book of Hebrews, it would be superiority or superior. Because over and over through the book, it brings out that Jesus is superior. Today we're going to look at Jesus compared to the angels, that Jesus is more superior than the angels. Later as we go through the book, we learn that Jesus is a superior priest and that He is superior to everything. And so the book makes that argument. So superior is a key word that we could apply to the book. Another phrase we could use to keep in mind about the book is hang in there. Because that's what the writer is trying to get these Hebrew Christians to do is hang in there. Don't give up. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old ways. Your faith is sure and sound. Hang in there. Recently I had the honor, I can't say the pleasure, but the honor of conducting the funeral for a dear friend. His name was Don Barnett. Don Barnett served his church faithfully for 40 years or more. He was the treasurer. He went on visitation. He cut grass. Pretty much anything he could do for the church, he did. One of the things that Don did personally was he, he got pens made up where you get the motto or something printed on the pen. And he had a bunch of pens made up in different colors. And he had two things on that pen. One of them was the scripture reference, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on thine own understanding. and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Great scripture. Underneath that was the phrase, hang in there. And I had the opportunity to go to a lot of meals with Don. We would typically, after church on Sunday, about a dozen of us 
would go out to eat somewhere, Don always had a fistful of pins. And when the hostess would seat us, he'd say, pick a color. So they would do that. And when the waitress came, he'd say, can you use a pen? And of course, they always need pens. And I asked Don, as I visited him shortly before his passing, how many pens had he given out? And he told me over 3,000. And it seems like a simple thing, but how many people, we won't know and he won't know till he's in heaven and they come, how many people were encouraged by that verse to trust in the Lord with all their thine heart. And hang in there. Because that's all we can do some days, isn't it? Just hang in there. And so that was Don's basic way of evangelizing and sharing his faith. And he and I, just just a great time. Many times we walked the streets knocking on doors, sharing about vacation Bible school or other events. So hang in there is our motto for the book of Hebrews. That's what the author is encouraging us to do. And so into our scripture, starting in verse 5, it is written, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Jesus, being God's son, is higher than any other created being. The angels were well revered. It was appropriate to revere them. Angels are, are magnificent creatures. We ought to understand, and, and let me share some things about angels. They are created beings. They were created at some time in and, and God's creation. They did not always exist. They are eternal like we are eternal and that our spirit continues on forever but as opposed to Jesus, to God, to the Holy Spirit, who was always eternal. They pre-existed. They've always been. And so they are truly eternal in that they have no beginning and no end. Once God has created us, who have the Spirit, whether it's angels or ourselves, we have eternal life in our spirit. But the angels were created The angels are spirit beings. We have occasions in the Bible where they could take on human form. But they they travel in that spiritual realm going back and forth from earth to God or wherever God sends them. But they can take on human form and we're encouraged to be hospitable to others because we never know when we're entertaining an angel. One may come to us Uh, for various reasons. We don't know the reason, but we're encouraged to be hospitable to all. So they can take on human form. God gave them free will. They could choose whether to obey Him or not. And we know that from uh, the story, the teaching about Lucifer or Satan or Beelzebub or all of those names that he has. In Isaiah it is told about him that he said, I will ascend to the mountain. I will be greater than God. He, he wanted to surpass who God was. He saw himself 
as worthy of that and as more powerful. And so sometimes, uh, as a trivia thing, I will ask you, I will ask people, what is the first sin committed in the Bible? And people will always go to Adam and Eve, but that's not quite accurate. The first sin was Lucifer believing through his pride that he could be greater than God. And for that, he was cast out of heaven. And then we have the scripture in Revelation that tells us that when he did that, he swept a third of the stars from the sky. So we don't know how many angels there are, but the book of Revelation teaches us that a third of them went with him and uh, defied God and now work. Some of those, the scripture tells us, are in change, but some are allowed to roam freely. We call those fallen angels demons. And we're told by Paul that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and demons uh, 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 that are against God. That's where our battle is. So these are some of the things we know. Those are angels, but because they're fallen angels, we've given them a different title. They are primarily messengers. When you look through the Old Testament, they were sent from God to His people, to the people, to tell them things. We see that a lot in the book of Daniel. And we see where Gabriel came and shared with Daniel those visions of the future. And it was Gabriel who came to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds to proclaim Jesus' birth. He was a messenger. Gabriel is one of only three angels that we know the name of. The first one I've said, Lucifer. The second one, Gabriel. The third one is Michael. Michael is an archangel, uh, a higher rank, and a warrior. And where we really see Michael the most is, again, in the book of Daniel, Daniel was belabored by something. He was going to the Lord in prayer. And after many, many days of prayer, and it's encouragement to us to be faithful and consistent and constant in our prayer, because Michael comes to Daniel and says, as soon as you started to pray, I was sent with the answer. But for 30 days, I have been battling Satan because he didn't want me to bring the answer. So there is this spiritual battle that goes on that tries to prevent what God wants to do. And we read about Michael being one of the warriors in that. So these are some of the attributes of the angels. The angels, the Bible tells us, long to look into the things that we know. And as powerful and great as they are, there's something we have that they do not experience, and that is redemption. That is our salvation. Jesus Christ came to die for us. That is not something that is, is happening with them. They are where they are. But Jesus Christ, God loved us, loved you so much that when sin came into our human nature, he wanted to restore that fellowship. He missed it. 
We were created to have fellowship with Him. We see that with Adam and Eve as they walked in the garden as mighty powerful as uh, words fail in describing God. Something He wanted to do was to come to the garden He created and walk with Adam and Eve. And when He comes at one time and they're nowhere to be found because they're hiding He calls out to them, where are you? He wanted that fellowship. And it had to break his heart that due to their sin, that fellowship was broken. God, of course, knows all things. And there was already action in place, plans in place for Jesus Christ to come to restore that fellowship because he wants to walk with you. He wants to talk with you. Not in some lofty words, O thy Lord, thou art. It was tough. I had people just coming against me right and left, or I had a challenge and I, I, I just was having trouble facing it. Just to open our hearts and share with them, and then to take time for him to share with us, to say, I love you, to say, I'm there with you, I'm going to help you, to spend that time. God desires that fellowship. And so we see this relationship here that we have a special relationship with God that the angels don't have, that we can cherish, that they long to look into because they don't experience it as mighty and powerful as they are. But the passage here is going into Jesus is greater, he's more superior, and it first talks about that he's the son, the one that came to earth that was begotten of Mary, that he lived as a little babe. He knows our goings. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows being hungry. He knows the challenges. He knows the struggles. And we can rely on that. And then it goes on, continuing, I will be his father, he will be my son, just reinforcing that. Verse 6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Another indication that he was greater than the angels. If the angels were greater than him, he'd be worshiping them, not the other way around. So the author here of Hebrews is making the point through multiple ways that Jesus is greater than the angels who were so admired and revered for their great power and strength. It continues on in verse 8. About the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So Jesus is king, and he's sitting in the throne at the right hand of God. He's been given dominion over everything. Earlier in the scripture, it reinforced what we looked at last week where it says, 
and God, God made the world through him. He was there, and God has now set him over the world. And sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, the right hand is the position of power. And so that is, a, I believe it's reality, but it's also a metaphor that he is sitting on the favored side of God. The left was seen as evil. The right was seen as good and right. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And God has placed him in this position. And it says his righteousness will be the scepter. Jesus is the one who's truly righteous. Righteous is never doing anything wrong. Righteous is being perfect. Righteous is, is following all the decrees of God. And Jesus, of course, does that. And we strive to be righteous. We strive to live according to what God, but praise God, he made the way for our failure and our righteousness. But Jesus sits on the throne, righteousness as his scepter. And he has been made above all things and anointed. When a king was made king, when others were given a place of honor, their head was anointed with oil. And so we have this picture here of Jesus being anointed. He was anointed one other time on earth when he was in the feast and Mary Magdalene came in and she had her perfume. Perfume that she was saving for her burial because they used that to try to cover the smell of death. It would have been very expensive, especially for her income. And she took it and she broke it or opened it and was washing his feet with it and using her hair to cleanse and dry his feet. And the disciples rebuked her. They put a monetary value on that. Why, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus stopped them because he realized she was worshiping him as Savior, Lord, and anointing him with oil. Jesus is anointed here as the king. Going on in verse 10, he also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. The ladies are studying Revelation and on Tuesdays. They're getting near the end, but it's, and it's near that end that it starts talking about a new heaven and a new earth that we're going to experience and it's, it's inconceivable, it's beyond what we can understand, but we have that, and that's what it's referring to here. Jesus created all of this. It was done through him, but all of this one day is going to come to an end. We are told it's not going to be like the flood where it was wiped out through water, but that it'll be through fire and flame, and there's been many... Many conjectures, we humans like to try to figure God out, what he's doing. Uh, 
And I remember, especially in the heyday of the nuclear uh, proliferation that many said the world was going to end in a nuclear storm where it'd all be decimated and that would certainly do it but I don't believe that's it I'll just give you this as a as a side little side thing just something I've thought about in trying to think of things when you look at how God works in his world just as in the flood he uses his creation to accomplish his work. He had the flood. The waters came up from the deep and it flooded and wiped out the earth all except those who were on the ark and things started over again. So I have wondered if God in doing that will use a sunspot, a sun flare off the sun. They happen all the time. Could be that one of them's big enough. If it is, it could incinerate the earth and fire. Take that for what it is, just one man kind of thinking about things. But we do have the truth that one day this is going to end, but Jesus remains. He doesn't change. He's the same. He is constant. He will always exist. He's always been. He's always going to be. We can place our trust in somebody great like that. And then it ends up in 13, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus endured suffering at the hands of man, at the hands of Satan. He was tempted by Satan. He was challenged by him. And God says, stay at my right hand. One day you'll be vindicated. One day your enemies will be like a footstool. And then it ends up with this one final verse, verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Again, casting the angels as messengers, as servants from God to help us, to watch over us. We have that teaching of, uh, of their protecting us. Not so much in the idea that we have of each person having a guardian angel, but just that as a body, they watch and protect us. So what do we take from this? There, there's the basic knowledge that Jesus is greater than the angels. And I doubt any of you have any trouble accepting that in our culture today. It was different for the Hebrews. They, they invenerated the angels much more and they questioned about Jesus being the Messiah. And so this teaching really applied. So we, we can accept this truth that Jesus is greater than the angels. But if we go back to one of those occurrences that I talked about there, where Satan said, I'm going to ascend on high, I'm going to be greater than God, and he was cast out. Those angels that rebelled against God are now in and facing eternal punishment. They're, they're facing the consequences of their action of rebelling against God. That is a lesson to us of the dangers 
of not believing God, of not following him, of not listening to him. Also in, in, in Hebrews, and we'll, we'll read that in a little bit in the next chapter, that people were held accountable to what an angel told them. God would send an angel as a messenger and say, this is going to happen, be warned. And if the people went against that, then they face the consequences. And it says, if the word of the angels was so binding, what about the word of Jesus Christ? And so we are challenged today. Do we exalt and honor Jesus Christ as he deserves? Surely a ruler who is benevolent as Jesus should be honored by his followers. You know, many rulers today, through the years, when they wanted to conquer a land, they would send their people out to kill the others, and they would take over the land Jesus came to establish his kingdom by him dying on the cross. He didn't ask his disciples to die. He protected them. He himself bore that weight. So he's not a ruler who sent others to die to save us. He came himself. That great Gaither song I love so much, he left the splendor of heaven to come to this mundane earth with all its difficulties he left his place he was in heaven with God he was enjoying all of whatever that is that our mind can't conceive and he left that to come here not as a king not triumphant riding on a white horse but as a little child he had to grow and as a little child he would have stumbled and fallen and scratched his knee Helping his dad, the carpenter, he probably got splinters. He suffered that. He suffered the other things of life. But he came and he did that. No wonder angels serve him joyfully when they see this. But we too often worship with impunity, arrogance, and prideful self-indulgence. We get concerned not about people not coming to Christ as their Savior, but whether things are comfortable for us. Is the temperature right? Is the music a song that I like? Is everything to my pleasing? And if it's not, well, I think I'll go somewhere else. Rather than, is this a place I can worship Jesus Christ? Is this a place where God's name is held high with great regard? Is this a place that strengthens me in the faith and encourages me to tell others about Christ and helps me to obey God? We're short-sighted. There is a final day of judgment. Jesus talks about it more than any, but it's so far out there, and we've heard about it for so long. It's easy for us to behave like we don't have to worry about it. But Jesus again taught that one day will come before the throne of judgment and he will separate the sheep and the goats and some will come before him expecting a good reception and we know that Jesus will say, depart from me for I never knew you. 
to each other. We can put on a good show. We can look like we are fantastic Christians, but man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. Is our heart right with God? And so we have that challenge today that as we see his scripture about the superiority of Jesus, we understand it cognitively or we accept that, how much bearing does it have upon our heart, upon our lifestyle? Do we, do we strive to obey him? He has given us so many teachings here that we spend the rest of our life trying to struggle. So that's the call to us today. He is superior. He is worthy of honor and worship more than we could possibly do. He is deserving of our obedience. We are alive because he died. He is a superior being, a superior God. He's superior than the angels, and he should be superior to our wants and desires. In Joshua chapter 24, they finally entered into the Canaan land that they had wandered from because of their disobedience. They made it in. God has sustained them over those 40 years. He's gone ahead of them in battle and cleared the way so that they could conquer the land, a rich land, a good land, a land promised to Abraham that has now come to fruition. But the Israelites once again turned away from God and began to worship the other gods of the lands, the Amorites, the, the gods of the Amorites. And Joshua, nearing the end of his life, puts the challenge to them. And Joshua, it's recorded in Joshua 24, 15. And he lays it out just pure and simple. If it seems right and better to you to worship the God of the Amorites, then do that. Be real, be honest. If that seems like a better way, then that's what you need to do. Knowing all that God had done for them, knowing what the God of the Amorites, the worship of the God of Amorites required and the sacrifice, that Joshua made that affirmation that, but as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. And that's a challenge to each one of us today and every day, if it seems right to you to follow the ways of the world, to follow the ways of yourself and flesh, if that seems like a better, smarter way, be honest and do that. However, many are saying, but as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord.